Amen. If you have your Bibles, if you would go ahead and open up to Psalm 16. Psalm 16. And while you're turning there, just to give you an update, if I haven't met you, my name's Kevin Sanders. We are planting. <laughs> that was where someone gave a woo to my name. Um, I'm not famous. Um, and uh, we're planting Redeeming Grace Church in Arlington, just the next town over. And last time I was here, I think it was about six weeks ago, I gave a very specific prayer request. And that was that we were, we were uh, looking to host an evangelistic discussion group at the, the public library in Arlington. We were hitting some roadblocks, and so I just asked you to pray. And asked many others uh, who were a part of what we're doing to pray as well. And uh, three days later, apparently you prayed and God heard, because three days later, um, after a lot of hesitation, the town allowed us to host that uh, discussion group at Robbins Library, and so for the last three weeks, we're, we're halfway through a six-week discussion uh, on the reason for God and answering common questions and objections to Christianity, and it has been just a joy to engage people who are exploring the truth claims of Christ and the gospel and who God is and the Word of God, and so thank you for praying. Um, I, I'd say that to encourage you to, to pray. Uh, when we pray, especially in line of God's will, especially for the advancement of the gospel, God delights in answering those prayers. And uh, I, I say that because if, if you know of anybody who's in Arlington that may uh, be a skeptic but open to exploring some of those questions, uh, you can point them to Arlington uh, Robbins Library at Arlington Center on 7 p.m. for the next three week, weeks on Thursday nights, and uh, they'll get some free Dunkin' Donuts as, as well and some gospel. So you can't really beat that. So uh, Psalm 16 is our text for this morning, and let's read this together and then we will jump in. A Midcam of David. Preserve me, O God, for in you I take refuge. I say to the Lord, You are my Lord. I have no good apart from you. As for the saints in the land, they are the excellent ones, in whom is all my delight. The sorrows of those who run after another God shall multiply. Their drink offerings of blood I will not pour out or take their name on my lips. The Lord is my chosen portion and my cup. You hold my lot. The lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. Indeed, I have a beautiful inheritance. I bless the Lord who gives me counsel. In the night also my heart instructs me. I have set the Lord always before me because he is at my right hand. I shall not be shaken. Therefore, my heart is glad and my whole being rejoices. My flesh also dwells secure. For you will not abandon my soul to Sheol or let your Holy One see corruption. You make known to me the path of life. In your presence there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of the Lord remains forever. Joy is a mark of Christian maturity. It's something that's supposed to define those of us who are followers of Jesus Christ. We're supposed to be overflowing with this sense of delight and happiness because of what God has done for us. He has saved us. Yet, though that's something that should define us, it seems like the, the wider world doesn't necessarily look at the Christian community and think joy. 
We don't necessarily get that reputation. Well, why not? I think there's a number of reasons for that. Some would say, there are some reasons we can't help. Some would say, well, your, your doctrine is, is too rigid. Well, we stand upon the word of God. Others uh, would say, well, there's been much done in the name of Christianity that is far from joyful. In fact, it, it may even be harmful and abusive. That's certainly true. But I think one of the major reasons that we're not necessarily known for joy is because just like everyone else, life in a fallen world tends to hit us pretty hard at times, doesn't it? We live in a world that is not perfect. There are times when our circumstances cause anxiety, when what's going on causes sorrow and, and pain. And you may look at your life and it causes stress, but, but you know deep down, you know if you're a follower of Jesus, that you're supposed to be joyful. Scripture tells you that. You hear words like the words of James, the brother of Jesus, who says, count it all joy even when you're in the midst of struggles, when you face trials of various kinds. And if you're like me, sometimes you hear that and you think, how am I supposed to do that? Maybe you think of that just as you gather for for corporate worship this morning. The, The reality is, I would venture to say most of us didn't walk into this building just overflowing with joy, ready to worship and sing to God, right? Let's be honest. We have burdens of our families, of our, of our jobs. Maybe we're experiencing deep pain, sickness, or loss of, of a loved one, right? And so we, we see this command of joy. We see joy all over scripture. That's point B, but we're here at point A. And the struggle for us is we oftentimes don't know how to get from the point A of our helplessness to the point B of our happiness, right? It's a legitimate struggle. And, and if that's you, and I believe at some time it's all of us, then this Psalm is for you. King David knows what you're going through. He understands this. David was a man who, Scripture says he was a man after God's own heart. He delighted in God. But also, if you read his story, he knew the heartache of sin. He committed some very heinous sins that are written down for all of us to see. He knew the deep pain of loss. He lost a child in infancy. He lost other children. He lost family members and and friends. He knew what it was like to have friends turn on him in an instant. He knew trials. He knew pain. Yet, when we look at King David, and specifically when we look at Psalm 16, David also knew how to take his soul in a point of despair and walk it to a point of joy. And that's what he's doing for us in this psalm. We're we're learning how from David to bring our souls from a place of helplessness to a place of of true happiness. From pleading desperation to soaring joy. That's what's happening in this psalm. And we're going to learn from King David. And what I want you to do as we walk through this, get creative with me for a moment. I want you to think of Psalm 16 as a building. A building with multiple floors. And, and what's really happening is this bottom floor is where the psalm starts. It's verse 1. And it's a place of helplessness. And what happens, though, as, as David begins reflecting on truths about who God is, his soul goes up a floor. And then it goes up another floor. So what we're doing is we're, we're getting in an elevator with King David. Now listen, I know there weren't elevators back then. But 
That's why I said put your creative minds on for a second. We're getting in the elevator with King David, and as, as he reflects on the truths of God, as he tells his souls these truths, we're going up with him. Because the reality is, it's hard to start at verse 11, isn't it? It's hard to start at a place, my soul is joyful. No, we have to learn to walk ourselves or get in the elevator and get from the point of helplessness to the point of the rooftop of the building, which is soaring joy. And that's what David is doing for us. So in order to do this, we're going to reflect on four truths in this passage. And if you want to think of that as a building, there's no picture for you, but you, know, you can think of these as different floors as we move up in the building. And the first truth is this. This is the first floor. God is his refuge. God is his refuge. Look at verse 1. He makes a request, a petition. Preserve me, O God. Now, this is the cry of a desperate man. He's, he is saying, God, keep me. Protect me. Now, we're not told the circumstances of, of David in this specific psalm. And I think, in fact, I think... That's one of the beautiful things about the Psalms is many of them don't tell us exactly what's going on surrounding it. It's helpful for us because we can apply it to our circumstances, right? And what we will see later that David did have an ultimate concern, an ultimate fear in verse 10, but it's enough to know now that David's in a place where he recognized his insufficiency in his trial. He's, he's given up. He's not saying, oh, maybe I can uh, fix this. Maybe I can rely on myself. He's not saying, God, let's sort of tag, this, tag team this thing together. No, he's saying, I am totally helpless. And what does he do? He cries out to God. Maybe this is a moment where he was abandoned by his friends. Maybe he was running for his life as he was rushed off of the throne of the king of, as the king of Israel. Maybe he is feeling the weight of his own sinfulness. Or maybe, as it seems David was prone to, maybe circumstantially things are fine, but inwardly he's just in the deep throes of depression and no longer sense the presence of of God. Whatever is going on, he is in the basement of the building. He feels helpless. And where does David go when he feels helpless? He goes to God. He cries out to God and he calls God, still in verse 1, his refuge. You're my my safe haven. You're my protection. My wife's grandmother lives in Mississippi, Caledonia, Mississippi. You don't know where that is. Um, I don't either still, even though I've been there. But Mississippi is prone to, it's not Tornado Alley, but it is prone to bad weather sometimes and tornadoes. And so several years ago, my wife's grandmother, who lives by herself now, uh, d- decided to have a storm shelter built. It's an above-ground storm shelter. And, and you can think about, you know what a storm shelter is. Right? It's a place where when a really bad storm comes, she's keeping up, she's listening to the radio, she knows if there's a tornado coming her direction, she gets out of the house, she goes into this small building, it's cement, the, the, the foundation goes down really deep, there's a steel door that closes and locks, And the purpose of that structure is when the storm comes, it may lay out every single thing around. It may lay out the house, the carport. It may take the car and throw it a few miles down the road. But that shelter is still standing. That's what a storm shelter is. David says, God, you are that for me. I, in my helplessness, am going to look to 
you as my refuge. This is a simple question for us. Where do you go when the storm comes? It's actually possible to pray with your lips, preserve me, O God, but then with your life, seek refuge in other things. Maybe life is difficult, so you look to entertainment. I'd rather just escape. Or maybe it's work. If I just work more, I don't have to think about this problem, or I can make more money and solve this this problem. I can get away from it. But listen, all of those things can be wiped away by the storms of life. There There is only one storm shelter that can withstand trials. And David knows this. And it is God. Go to God. Go to God in prayer. That's what David is doing here. If you want a very specific application, a very specific way to pray, I'm going to give you a a very simple prayer you can pray. Get your pen ready. Are you ready? This is you. You need to take refuge. Go to God in prayer. And here's what you pray. Help. That's it. Say, well, that's not very spiritual. No, no, no. It is very, it's very spiritual. Because when you cry out to God for help, you have recognized something very important, that there is nothing in you, in yourself, to get you out of this situation. You have acknowledged, acknowledged a very core truth to Christianity, which is you are helpless apart from God. And, and friends, that is a good place to be. And it may not feel like it, And in David, in doing this, what he does is he brings his soul up one floor. He brings his soul from the basement to the the first floor of of refuge in God. He goes from helplessness to a place of safety. Now listen, there may not be joy there yet. The circumstances may not have changed. But I know that God is my refuge. Where do you go? Let me just encourage you, whatever is going on in your life, make it a habit to cry out to God and help. Don't rely on self-sufficiency. Don't believe the lies of our culture that say, no, 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 the real strong people are those who sort of pull themselves up by the bootstraps. No, that's pride. You need God. Go to Him as your refuge. Then David continues, and he reflects for us on why he goes to God as his refuge. And this, this is number two. For number one, God is his refuge. Number two, God is his greatest treasure. God is his greatest treasure. Verse two, he says, I say to the Lord, you are my Lord. Now, put your eyes on your Bible for a second at verse two. This is important. And look at that statement. It says, I say to the Lord, all caps, if you guys see that in your English translation, you are my Lord. Capital L, lowercase o-r-d. What is, what's that about? Well, two different words for God here. The first one, I say to the Lord, is the name of God. Yahweh or Jehovah is how we would, would translate it. And the second one is a title for God. It's, it's Adonai, or you could translate it sovereign one. So, so David is saying, I say to God, you are my sovereign. I say to Jehovah, you are the one who is in control here important. He goes on and he says, verse 2, I have no good apart from you. Just saying about this rich truth. In other other words, my God 
who is sovereign in control over my life, who is my refuge. He's more than that. He's also the, the giver of everything good in my life. He's reflecting on these truths about God. He's telling his soul these truths. James puts it this way in James 1.7, Every good and perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, in whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. God never changes. He is the giver of good gifts. And so he's, maybe he's reflecting on all the good things in his life, family, friends, sunrises, sunsets. It's the 4th of July this week. Freedom, all these good gifts, hot dogs. Uh, for some reason, that's what I think about when I think 4th of July. Though maybe that's not a good gift. Who knows what's in those things? But a, a good laugh. We had friends over last night. We played charades, you know, where you got the the game on the phone and you put on your head and we were laughing just for hours, right? It's a gift from God. Whatever you enjoy about God's gifts. But David's saying something more here. He's not just saying, I'm enjoying your gifts, God. He's saying, you, yourself, are the epitome of goodness. Meaning without you, even all the good things have no good. You see, do you see the weightiness of what he's saying here? Not just everything in my life is good because of you, but if, if you weren't there, there would be no good whatsoever. See, in the trials of our lives, we tend to doubt God's goodness. And if you've been following Jesus for a while, it's not necessarily so much that you doubt that, that God is there. You may know that he is there, but you face a trial in your life and you, you wonder, God, I know you're there, but are you good? Right? Wrestled with this a few years ago, very... Very uh, just painful season of tragedy in our life. I was a youth pastor and, and had a van full of kids, and we were driving somewhere, driving in front of a skate park, and a 15-year-old kid wasn't paying attention. I was driving. He stepped out in, the, in front of the van and was killed instantly. I was driving. We had all my students with me, months and months of just turmoil from them, wrestling through this. And for the first time in my, my Christian life, I didn't doubt whether or not God was there. I knew he was there, but the question was, God, are you good? Right? Are you good? And as I began to reflect on God's word and, and heed the counsel of others, as others helped me do what David is doing here, pointing my soul to truths about who, who God is, I, I realized something. That if, if God is also sovereign, what he says in verse 2, God created everything, created me, could he not operate in a way that I may not understand exactly everything that he does? Right? Could not God... Be good even in the midst of this painful trial, even though I can't explain it? This is a common, maybe, maybe this is you, maybe you're not a Christian and you have some doubts, and one of those problems is, how could God be good if all of this happens in the world? I asked that question myself. But then I began to realize, what about all the other times I've gotten in a car and driven from point A to point B and been completely safe? Where was God then? God was there. We tend to ask these sort of questions. Where was God when that plane crashed? Okay, but where, what about, he was the same place he was when a thousand other planes took off and landed safely yesterday. Right? So David is telling himself these truths. And here's, here's his logic. God, you're my everything. You are good. Therefore, why would I go anywhere else but to you in the midst of this trial? 
There's a story in John chapter 6 where Jesus is with his disciples and he's teaching a very hard truth. And a large number, a majority of Jesus' followers completely just bailed after they hear him teach. They're like, we're done. We can't do this anymore. Jesus turns to his disciples and says, are you guys going to leave as well? And Peter, speaking on behalf of his disciples in John 6, 68, says, Lord, where else shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. That's David's reasoning here. He says, when I reflect on the goodness of who you are, I realize there's really no other option. Why would I go anywhere else? And then he goes on. Look at verse 3. He's not, only, he's not the only one who recognizes this. He starts thinking about others, other saints who are, are in this fight of joy with him. This is true of all people, the saints of the land, the excellent ones. He says, they're my, my delight. And he realizes he's not alone. This is so important. When, we, when we're in trials, we tend to isolate ourselves, don't we? David starts thinking and he realizes, oh wait, there are other saints who are in this fight as well. They delight in God. And because of that, I delight in them. It's an important truth for us. Listen, treasuring God is a community project. It's not something that we, we, we go at on our own. Think about this as you come here this morning, as you come to worship God this morning. What, what are we doing? We're not just here. It's not just about you and God. It's not just the vertical relationship. Right? You come in and as you sing about God as a good, good father, yes, you're exalting God, but you know what you're doing to the person next to you? You're taking their soul and you're lifting it up with you. There's not just a vertical aspect, there's a horizontal aspect as well. And David says, when I think about the people of God, the saints in the land, those who are the the excellent ones, I'm encouraged to know that I'm not alone. And my soul is brought up to treasure God. Think of it as those old balance scales. You know, you guys have seen those those scales. David goes on and and he's comparing everything else to, to God and the goodness of God. And so he goes on in verse 4, and he says, The delight of the people of God, put that on one end of the scale, and then look at those who, who run after other gods. Their sorrows shall multiply. I want nothing to do with that. I've seen those who run away from God, who take refuge in the things of this world. I'll put that on one end of the scale. I'll put the people of God, delighting in God on the other end, and God wins every single time. Every single time. Why? Verse 5 and 6, because God is my portion. Notice his soul now moving up. Now he's to a place of contentment in his life because he has all he needs in God. Listen to the language he uses here. It talks about the lines. It's, it's, it's really referring to an allotment of land, an inheritance. Someone has sort of taken a plot of land. They've sort of drawn it off and they're saying, this is yours, this belongs to you. He's saying, that's God for me. I don't want land. You can have all the land you want. I'll I'll take God himself. God is far better. This reminds us of Paul's words in Philippians chapter 4, verse 12 and 13. He says, I know how to be brought low, and I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I've learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. See the context there of Paul? We, we tend to take that verse and say, you know, I can score touchdowns through Christ who strengthens me. 
I love Tim Tebow, by the way. That's my boy. But, you know, we kind of take that verse. I can, I can live my dreams through Christ who strengthens me. Certainly that's part of it. But what Paul is saying is, because of who God is, I can suffer well and be content even in the trials of this life. Why? Because I have the one thing that no one can take away from me. I have God, my portion and my lot. Can you say that? Can you say God is my greatest treasure. See, trials have a way of revealing what we treasure, right? Revealing what we have maybe have, we have put in the place of God in our lives. We think, oh no, I don't idolize money until money is taken away. We realize how there's no joy, there's sorrow in our lives because we don't have that thing. No, I don't, I don't idolize family until things aren't going as well at, at home. And you realize, you know what? I'm treasuring something other than God. If that's you, listen, take these truths. Tell them to your soul so that you can know that no matter what the storm knocks down, God is your treasure. We go up another floor, number three. God is his counselor. So now David's in a good place, right? He's moving up in the building. He's taking refuge in God. God's his treasure. And now he's telling us that God gives him counsel. Verse 7. His heart instructs him in the night. Now, what, what does he mean here? Now, this is great because David is actually teaching us what he was sort of a master at doing. And what I think a lot of us as Christians, we've sort of lost this art today. He, he's, he's saying, I, I teach my heart with the word of God. God is my counselor. He's meditating on the word of God. I know you heard a little bit about this last week. He's filling his mind and his heart constantly so that he's counseled directly by God himself. He's saying, I'm filling my mind with God so that when I'm laying down at night and those thoughts of anxiety are coming into my mind, I'm counteracting those with the truth of who God is, right? So he's saying my only diet of the truth of God is not, you know, for 45 minutes on a Sunday morning, or a few minutes at a community group. I'm, no, no, no. My diet of the word of God is constantly going in. I am being counseled directly by God himself. And the application here is very, very simple. Some would call this the, the art of preaching to yourself. Listen, Christian, you need to learn how to take the word of God and preach it to yourself. Be a preacher to your soul. Because there are times when your soul... And your mind will not want to believe the truth about who God is. And those times are not going to be when you're in here around other people singing wonderful songs, right? Those times are going to be when you're alone throughout the week. We may feel pretty good right now, but what about Tuesday night? When you're overwhelmed by what's going on in your life. Is the word of God so hidden in your heart that you can take the gospel, the message of, of who God is, and guide your soul? David says, that's, that's what I'm doing here. So I can pull my heart. Listen, you study the word, you memorize the word, you learn who God is. No, not so that you can you know, win a Bible trivia competition. They don't have those up here. I'm from the South. Anyways, not so that you can impress people with your knowledge at the coffee shop. You do that. Why? So that you can counsel your soul in the midst of despair. Listen, this is so important. There is a false dichotomy, I think, in in Christianity today that says either you're a truth person or you're an emotion person, right? Some of you just by nature, you kind of lean one way. 
I'm just a truth person. I don't care about all the feelings. Don't give me all that touchy-feely stuff. That's icky. Just give me cold, hard facts. Uh, I'm just, a, I'm just a, a feelings person. I don't, you know, truth, it's important. I know it needs there, but just make me feel good. Well, listen, that false dichotomy does not exist in the Bible. And the Psalms are the perfect example. David is a perfect example of saying, listen, you better pursue theological study of God. That's what that word means. Truth, biblical truth. Read, study, fill your mind with it so that your soul will be thrilled by who God is. You feed your emotions with the truth of God. That's what David's doing here. He's saying, I take the truth of God and I guide my feeling. I let God give me counsel, right? It's like that little spark. I can never, I was a Boy Scout, I could never start a fire. It drove me crazy. If I had a lighter, I was fine. But some of you are Boy Scouts, Girl Scouts. You get out there, you find a little bit of stuff, you get a rock and you're like, ching, 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 you know, and you can start a fire. I would always get a little spark and I could never get it. And the scout leader would say, no, you need to stoke the fire. Stoke the fire. Blow on it a little bit. That's what David's doing here. That, that little spark in his soul. He's taking the truth of God and he's stoking the fire so that he's, his affections are stirred and delighting in who God is. And how does he do, do it? He does it with the word of God. Read the word. Know the word. George Mueller was a famous pastor, founded many orphanages in the London area in the 1800s. And he was sort of known for, for this. And here's what he said in one of his journals as he's reflecting on this. His quote's on the screen. He says, The first thing to be concerned about was not how much I might serve the Lord, how, my, how I might glorify the Lord, but how I might get my soul into a happy state and how my inner man may be nourished. I say that the most important thing I had to do was to give myself to the reading of the word of God and to meditation on it. That's what it means to be counseled by God. Are you, are you committed to that? Listen, let me just encourage you to take time daily. It doesn't matter when it is, whether it's morning, night. Get away with God and make it your goal, not just to fill your mind with knowledge, not just to check off a Bible reading plan, but to get your soul into a happy state. Make that your aim. That's what it means to be counseled by God. And now we're moving up. We're on the top floor now, by the way. And notice the difference in verse 8 from verse 1. David's moved all the way from the petition in verse 1, preserve me, to this assertion in verse 8. I shall not be shaken. I love that. And by the way, friends, this takes time. Don't be discouraged if you feel like you sit in here week after week and you feel like the word is bouncing off of your heart. It takes time. Don't be discouraged if you open your Bible in prayer and you feel like, man, nothing is happening. No, no, no. Be patient. Stoke that fire and bring your soul from verse 1 to verse 8. Now David's in a place where he's saying, not only do I have refuge, but I cannot be shaken. Nothing can touch me. But it actually gets even higher than that. Number four, Christ is his confident joy. All right, we've left the building now. And maybe you've seen uh, Willy Wonka in the Chocolate Factory. The old one, not the new one. It's creepy. But you know the, the, the very end where Charlie you know, gets in there and they, they're on the elevator. Nod your head if you're with me. Okay. No, no one. Okay, three of you. Okay, so he goes up and the, this creepy elevator is just going to the top of the building. It doesn't stop. It just, boom, just bursts right through the roof. Okay. And then just soaring around over the town. That's where David is right now. Right? He is soaring with joy. Verse 9, now 
we've gone through, and he's saying, therefore, meaning because of everything I've just said, because God is my refuge, because God is my treasure, because God counsels me, I'm glad. I rejoice. I have confident joy. In verse 10, we, we learn what David was seeking refuge from. He says, here's why I have this joy. For, because God will not abandon my soul to Sheol. What, what is David saying, I won't be shaken by? He's saying, I won't be shaken by death. This, this, is, this is amazing to think about. David's saying, I am glad because I will not die. Now, this gets a little difficult for us, doesn't it? Because David, if you didn't know this, it's like 3,000 years ago, David is dead. He's not alive today. In fact, the prophet Nathan comes to David in 2 Samuel chapter 7 and speaks for God. And God says, when your days are fulfilled, you'll lie down with your fathers. Translation, hey David, you're going to die. So what could this mean? Well, God goes on in 2 Samuel 7. He says, I'll raise up your offspring after you who shall come from your body and I'll establish a kingdom. He'll build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. So is David just like so excited about joy in God that you know he's, he's sort of just kind of like overemphasizing a truth? I'm never going to die. Is it just wishful thinking? Or is there something deeper here? Well, there's certainly something deeper here. And if you would, keep your finger in Psalm 16. If you have your Bibles, you can find the answer in Acts chapter 2. It's wonderful when Scripture gives commentary on Scripture. Don't just jump from the Bible and say, maybe let me go Google this and see what this means. Because a thousand years later, the Apostle Peter after Jesus had died on the cross and rose from the dead, spent 40 days with his disciples, ascended into heaven, filled his people with the Holy Spirit, the apostle Peter stands up and he preaches the first sermon of the church filled with the Holy Spirit. And in this sermon, he quotes Psalm 16. And he gives us an explanation of what David meant. Acts chapter 2, verse 30 through 32. It says, Being therefore a prophet... He's talking about David. And knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that he would set one of his descendants on his throne, 2 Samuel 7, he, David, foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of Christ. Stop for a second. Peter is saying, King David, a thousand years ago, in writing Psalm 16, foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of Jesus. That... He was not abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. This Jesus God raised up, and of that we are witnesses. This is the key to understanding the psalm. This psalm is, yes, it is about David and his journey to joy, but deeper than that, it's ultimately about Christ's journey on our behalf, on David's behalf. See, Christ became one of us, and unlike you and me, Christ perfectly found refuge in his Father God. But we find refuge in other things. Christ perfectly treasured God above all things, while we treasure the things of this world. 
Christ perfectly obeyed the counsel of God all the way to the cross, died on our behalf. But the good news is he didn't stay dead. Why? Because verse 10, God did not abandon his soul to death or let his Holy One see corruption. God raised Jesus from the dead. And here is the gateway to true fullness of joy. David, really not even knowing what he is saying fully, is saying Christ in his death opened up a pathway so that those who like David trust in him. Death is no longer a dead end. The greatest thing David feared is no longer a dead end. Your trials are no longer a dead end, but they're a doorway to the fullness of joy. Because where did Jesus go when he ascended into heaven? He sat down at the right hand of the throne of the Father and he invites those who are joy seekers to come to the same gateway. That's how we receive fullness of joy. That's the soaring heights of Psalm 16. Is Christ your joy? If you have not turned from your sins and trusted in Jesus then you will be trying and trying and trying to pull your soul up from out of a depth that you cannot do that from. But if you look to Christ, you enter the presence of fullness of joy. And that's not just future, but it's present as well. As I was thinking about this, I thought of a friend from a church where I was, used to be one of the pastors. Her name was Judy. And she was diagnosed with a very just aggressive, fast-growing brain cancer, tumor, and in the last year of her life, many church members would visit her with her and spend time with her and, and would just walk away amazed at her response at her trials. And one of the last visits that our pastor had with her, he, she told him this. She said, in this trial, brain cancer, I've had more of an awareness of the holiness of God, the presence of God, and true joy than I've ever had in my life. That's an example of what it means to apply Psalm 16. What was Judy saying? She's saying, listen, the storm has wiped out everything in my life. I'm about to die. Everything is gone. My health is deteriorating. But because of Christ, what I'm facing is no longer a dead end. It's a doorway to eternal joy. I know what's coming, and because I know what's coming, I can have that joy now. What do we just sing about? We sing beautiful. Death is just a memory, and tears are no more. That's coming. And listen, that future reality for those who trust in Christ, and if that's not you, please believe in him. That urges us, even in the midst of today's struggles, to have joy, to be marked by joy. So as we close, I just want to give you two things to think about. The first is this, as we reflect on the psalm as a whole. Pray this way, Christian. Let Psalm 16 be a guide in how you pray. Don't settle for just, you know, the sort of short, listen, pray as much as you want all throughout the day, but, but don't settle for just short, pithy prayers. Dig deep, reflect on the truth of God Find refuge in God. Make your petitions before God. 
Tell your soul that he's the greatest treasure. Let the word of God counsel you, and you will pull yourself up out of, by God's grace, out of that depths of despair to Christ. And the second is simply this. This is for those who have trusted in Christ, maybe for a, a, a while. But those of you who are here and you don't believe in Jesus, look to Christ in faith. You have, you and I, all of us have sought to settle for lesser joys. But there is no joy like knowing that your sins are forgiven and and knowing that you are in the presence of God. Look to Christ in faith, both for eternal joy in the future, but also real and genuine joy today. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you. We thank you just for the brutal honesty of your word. The Psalms give us such a clear picture of what it means to wrestle with the truths of who you are, to struggle when things aren't going the way we think they should be going. And so God, we pray that your Holy Spirit would do what we just saw in David's own heart. For those of us who are wrestling with anxiety, with a deep abiding trial and pain in our life, would you show us that you're our refuge? That there is no good apart from you and that in your presence there is fullness of joy. God, for those who have never trusted in you, I pray that your spirit would open their hearts now to the truth of who Christ is. The reality that yes, death is coming, but Christ has defeated death. It is now a doorway, not a dead end. God, would they believe? And Father, would you give us a true and abiding joy in you so that we would reflect that mark of being a follower of you to others. We pray all these things by your grace, for your glory, and in Jesus' name, amen.